This is Alex Mears, and welcome to Recon Labs Search and Acquire podcast, where we speak with veterans who have successfully transitioned from the military into owning and serving as CEOs in small businesses that they've acquired. Unlike traditional startup entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship through acquisition or search funds allow early and mid-career entrepreneurs to acquire and operate an existing small business. Our goal with this podcast is to share lessons learned from the many successful veteran searchers and entrepreneurs who have gone before you on this journey. We are excited today to welcome Danny Fields and Steve Reese to the podcast. Danny and Steve attended VMI and the Citadel respectively, and despite the rivalry, following their time in the military and several civilian jobs, Danny and Steve met in business school at Rice University and decided to partner on a traditional search in 2017. They ultimately acquired Holland Supply, a value-add distributor in Columbus, Ohio, in 2019. Our wide-ranging conversation today includes Danny and Steve's insights into how they drastically improved their sourcing during the search phase by focusing down into several specific niches, as well as how they put in place a range of systems into a prior-generation small business to enable it to scale and grow after their acquisition. Danny and Steve, thanks again for joining us today. To get started, could you give a little background about yourselves, where you grew up, and how you decided to serve in the military? Yeah, I'll start. Um, so I grew up in a small farm town just outside of Indianapolis called Pittsburgh. Um, born and raised there, spent most of my life there. Um, I ended up going to the Virginia Military Institute. Um, that was, I started in uh, 2001. And, you know, just a few months after I started, that's when uh, the World Trade Center towers went down. And I remember pretty vividly, I was a, a freshman at VMI, a rat. And uh, I remember an upperclassman coming to find me and <clears throat> telling me what happened and told me just, hey, ignore all the rules and just run as fast as you can to see what's going on. Um, before I joined VMI, I was still kind of on the fence about whether or not I wanted to join the military. But, um, you know, that that day kind of solidified my decision for me. I grew up in South Florida and my path was slightly different. Um, you know, my parents went through a divorce and when they did, I wasn't being the best kid, and I had a relative who had gone to a military academy in Virginia called um, Massanon Military Academy. So kind of had to sit down with me, talk to me about, hey, the importance of getting a good education, setting myself up for my future. For whatever reason, I don't know why, when I was 14, 15 years old, I took his advice, decided I wanted to go to that school, so started going to a um, military academy, a boarding school. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. And it was there that I met, you know, some of the administration were Citadel grads, the president and the commandant of the school. And they became, the commandant in particular, became a really great mentor for me. Um, you know, really started to take an interest in leadership principles, everything I was learning at that high school and decided to go into the military. And so naturally I was going to go to a military college, um, and, and wound up applying to a few, but ultimately went to the Citadel and then um, went into the Army as an infantry officer when I graduated. Did you guys know each other uh, when you were at Citadel and your VMI? And then did you, did you have to work through that before you, when you were deciding to, to launch a search together? <laughs> no, we didn't know each other beforehand. We actually we met in grad school at, uh, at Rice University. So um, it was it was post-military career when we met, but uh, we learned pretty quickly that we had very similar backgrounds. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it's something we had to, to work through. I think if anything, it's actually, uh, it's benefited us that we both went to similar types of schools. Yeah. Um, but we do give each other crap for it all the time. 
<laughs> naturally every day. And Steve, you, you start you started mentioning what, what did you both end up doing in the military? Can you talk a little about about your your, your time in service? Yeah, sure. Um, I went in as an infantry officer. Uh, went to the 82nd Airborne, um, and I was a platoon leader uh, over in Afghanistan for a year. Came back, um, had an anti tank platoon, so second platoon leader um, duty there, and then company executive officer and. I was at the point where I, I was looking at going to the captain's career course, but through my whole time in the army, I had some issues, some medical issues with my legs. I just kept, kept getting these, these nasty fractures in my legs and it was impact related. Um, decided, you know, it wasn't the right thing for me to stay in. Ultimately wound up getting out, uh, before captain's career course and just said, Hey, time for me to find something new to do. But while I was in, Absolutely loved it. I mean, had that not happened, would have loved to stay longer. Um, but over in Afghanistan, leading a platoon, really being out in a, a region of the country on my own with my own um, patrol base, my platoon advising either a police commander or an Afghan army commander, um, kind of setting the strategic idea or vision for that little region that I owned and then carrying that out and executing it. You know, the general guidance was um, from my commanding officer, let us know what you're going to be doing at least three days out, send us your, your con ops for that, and then go ahead and execute. So had quite a bit of latitude and a lot of autonomy and, and it was a great time and I had a great platoon. I was lucky enough that even though, um, you know, we got into all the, all the things you imagine downrange um, some fights and a lot of drinking tea and building relationships in, in, in the fights was lucky that, uh, didn't lose any of my guys down there. Um, couple injuries, but it was a good outcome for us overall. So I got, I look back at my army time and I really enjoyed it. And Danny, do you mind giving us a little about your background in the military as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I finished, uh, I graduated VMI in 2005. And I entered the Army as a transportation officer. I spent my first three years as a transportation officer. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough uh, right out of OBC to get a, a ranger school slot. Uh, so I showed up to my unit, and it was, it was kind of funny. Not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of transportation soldiers really even knew what a, a ranger tab was. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. But, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something a little bit more than uh, than what the Army had given me. So at the end of those three years, I, uh, I applied for the, the Special Forces Assessment and Selection course, um, finished that, went through the Q course. And in 2010, I earned my Green Beret and I stayed in until uh, January of 2014. So, you know, I did a deployment as a transportation officer to Iraq. That was about uh, 14 months or so. Um, I did two deployments to Afghanistan as a, a team leader, detachment commander in seventh group. And then um, as a company XO in seventh group, I got to go down to uh, Honduras for a few months. That was, it's more like a vacation for us. <laughs> still doing work, rolling up our sleeves and getting work done. But, um, and I, I, I left the military shortly after that. And did either of you before arriving in business school, had you ever heard of search funds or entrepreneurship through acquisition? No, I, I mean, I'll be honest. My, my idea of becoming an entre entrepreneur was really, there were two paths. You either you either start a business or you work your way up the corporate ladder to a senior role. I, I hadn't even ever even considered or known anyone who had acquired a business that wasn't even in my 
And what was it in business school that, you know, as you learned about about ETA and search, what, what was it that, that appealed to you? And then can you talk a little bit about your, the decision ultimately to pull the trigger and to, to actually launch a search? Yeah, um, I, I think the way we discovered it, I actually had a friend who was at a different business school graduating. And he told me he, you know, might be considering a search fund to which I asked, what's a search fund? Right. And that was the introduction. And Danny and I were at school together at that time. So I shared what I learned with him. And I think the idea of going back to our time in the military, hey, go out to this grid location or go to this patrol base, take over control of it, put a campaign plan together for how you plan to stabilize and win over the population in that area, both through through all kinds of means, right? It could be drinking tea, like I mentioned earlier. It could be trying to find where there's threats and and you know, get in fights with those guys and, and push them out of the area, that kind of thing. But ultimately, put a good plan together, take your resources that you've got available and go execute. Having that that kind of experience um, is something that's very unique, I think. And at least what I found since the military is entrepreneurship um, is really the area where I've been able to do that, right? And when I learned about what a search fund was, whether – you know, looking at entrepreneurship as starting a company or buying one and then holding the reins and completely kind of adjusting the course of that business to grow it and expand it and compete well within your market. I think there are really similar traits to that as well as what we did in the military. And we liked that. We liked, hey, you're going to be at the helm and your success or failure is going to be your own, right? You're going to write that story by deciding what a good strategy is, building a really good team, figuring out what motivates that team and, and moving them in the direction to make that strategy a reality. So really like that idea. And and that's more of, I think, the professional part. The other part was the financial part. I also um, saw myself probably working for other people and not having very much control over my own future or being able to build a little bit of wealth for my own family unless I, I owned a portion of a business. Um, and so that was the other part of the search fund that was really attractive, being able to take um, a large stake in a business, own it, grow it, and develop some wealth for my family. And, and that comes a lot from not only my after the military experience of getting out and working um, you know, for other folks, but also looking at my grandfather and my family. He was kind of a role model. He was always able to help the family out if there was somebody else in the family who might be struggling, as a business owner, he had the financial capacity to help people out once in a while. And by no means does my grandfather live a lavish lifestyle. Um, he's still a pretty humble guy. If you were to go to his house, you wouldn't think, hey, this this person was an entrepreneur who did pretty well for himself financially. And, and so I think him being that role model was more about having the ability and, and having that safety net financially. Um and I appreciated seeing that and wanted to be able to replicate something for myself as I went forward and got married, you know, had a child, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we, we get this question, as I'm sure you do, from, from a lot of interested searchers. How did you think through the decision between launching a traditional search fund, you know, raising the capital up front from investors versus doing a self-funded search? I think for us, it was, I mean, I don't want to speak for Steve, but I think it was pretty simple for us. I mean, in, in the realm of a, a self-funded search versus a traditional search, 
it really comes down to raising that first bucket of cash. And for Steve and I, you know, we spent a short career in the military and it's not as lucrative as people make it out to be. So uh, we did not have a good nest egg to fall back on. Um, I, you know, in, in my first year of business school, I, I had a child. Um, you know, Steve was Steve had gotten married. And so ultimately it came down to, hey, look, we, we need we need a source of income while we search because we didn't want to go in and we didn't want to work full time at our jobs and try to search on the side. That wasn't something that we wanted to consider. Um, and so for us, the constraint was we needed a salary and to pull us out of our full time job so that we could focus full time on a search. And it was as simple as that. I mean, and, and for us, that was kind of the biggest draw to the traditional search fund. There's, of course, some other pros and cons to each. But for us, that was kind of the driving factor. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And as you as you launched your search, can you just talk a little bit about kind of the industries where you spent time and then how you ultimately found the business that you did acquire? Yeah, sure. Uh, the industries we spent time were many. Um, I think we started our search. You know, this is a really big topic, right, in the search fund community is how do you search? How do you target? And I think we had a very rapid fire spam approach at first where we weren't going too deep into industries um, and there was a good side and a bad side to that. The good side was we were reaching out to lots of different businesses. We, we would typically start at industries, look at trends of growth, look at margins, look at concentration, pick four or five industries, buy lots of data for owners and start sending emails that were not very personalized, right? What that resulted in was lots of conversations with lots of, of business owners, none of which were very valuable, but we at least got comfortable with saying, Hey, this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. We're interested in your business. Would you like to talk more? And then starting to go down the road of what information do we need? How do we do diligence? How do we revert all this back to the investors and tell them what we're working on? Um, That was the pro. We got a lot of reps in doing that. The con was we probably did it a little bit too long, maybe nine, 10 months um, where we realize around that nine, 10 month mark, it's going to be much more valuable for us to go very deep into an industry, learn the network, learn the people, be able to have a meaningful conversation with a business owner where they realize like, Hey, maybe these guys don't come from the industry, but it's clear to me, they've done a lot of research and they know some people and they're much more comfortable talking to you. And, and they feel like it's a more serious conversation, right? So that was the evolution of our search. But Danny, you want to talk through like the targets and how we found Holland, how we landed on this? Yeah. So, you know, Steve kind of talked about our spam approach, which we did for nine months or so. And then we we adjusted course and decided to become more tailored. And that's where it became, I think, for both of us, a little bit more exciting because we started to have higher quality conversations. We felt like we were talking to business owners who were actually wanting to sell and not just looking for evaluation. Um, we, we were speaking the same language as the business owners. And the way we did that is we would spend, so like Steve said, we would identify two or three industries each. And then we would spend about uh, three or four weeks just doing a deep dive. We would call as many possible people as we could without talking to owners. We would call to, we would call sales reps. We would call, uh, you know, people who understood the regulatory environment in that particular industry. We would talk to lawyers. We would talk to 
uh, academics who studied that industry. We would talk to as many possible people as we could just to really validate our hypothesis that this is a good industry to pursue. But the added benefit was that we got to learn the language of the industry. We got to understand the trends. And then so what we would do is once we validated it was a good industry, we created a target list of different companies within that industry. Um, and then we were able to create really tailored messages to those business owners. Um, and then we would, you know, we, we'd write them a hand letter, sign it in ink, um, mail it to them. And our response rate went from, you know, when we're doing the spam approach. It was roughly one to 2%, what you would expect, but it jumped up to, I mean, north of 50% response rate once we switched to that, that more tailored approach. And it was just more fun. I mean, I think there was, there was one instance where, you know, we identified an industry where we could only find really six targets across the country. And this was a, an industry Steve was pursuing and he got a random phone call on his phone one day, saw the, um, the area code on the phone and instantly knew which business it was just because of the area code. So he was able to pick up the phone in his mind. He was already prepped to have that conversation and had a really great conversation with that owner. Um, and that's the kind of, you know, it, you just are more prepared and it results in a, you know, a qualified lead and you come off as a, a more appropriate buyer to that seller. Yeah. The numbers for us too were, you know, we reached out and a lot of this was spam granted, but reached out to 10,000 businesses or business owners. In some cases, multiple people in the same company, we'd send an email to the CEO, the president, the owner, the, all the roles we could find, right? So reached out to about 10,000 people, wound up making 10 offers. Um, five of those offers got signed as initial LOIs and four of those deals broke. And the final one that went through uh, was Holland Supply Company. Um, and by no means was Holland Supply Company, you know, the sexiest business out there. It's a natural gas product distribution company that's been around since the 60s. And when we first came and, and met the seller and looked at the business, it was really clear to us that the business, first of all, if we looked at the finances, was very stable, tied into the utility industry, very recurring customer behavior, by no means a recurring um, kind of revenue model, but same customers, very low churn, buying the same kinds of products each year sometimes in slightly higher volume. And there was always a predictable kind of price increase, which was normal in the industry. So we really liked the steady foundation the company had. But when we looked at the way it was run, it really hadn't changed um, in, in 30, 40 years. So we saw an opportunity to come in and with a lot of work, um, change, you know, implementing systems, really building a high performing sales team that has good metrics and targets and is very disciplined and kind of the op tempo, the rhythm of, hey, we're going to set goals. We're going to review opportunities. We're going to ask hard questions to validate if, if they are real opportunities or not. And we're going to do this every, you know, on a very recurring basis so that we're constantly digging into the best opportunities we can find and putting our effort there for sales and a host of other things. But we saw if we do all this work to this business that really hasn't changed much, there's an opportunity to grow it. Um, and, and in addition, it was somewhat of a fragmented industry um, with many different distributors of products. And we saw an opportunity to probably make, you know, a couple acquisitions during our ownership to grow it that way as well. 
Um, so that's what we liked about it. Definitely a slow, steady business that, you know, nobody really wants to talk about at a cocktail party. It's not really going to get anybody fired up, but, um, but it's worked out really well for us. I mean, COVID notwithstanding, um, it's been, it's been a, a good two and a half years for us where the business has performed well. And a lot of the work that we started putting in at the front end, we're starting to see it bear a little bit of fruit now. There, there are a few great points that I'd like to spend, spend a little more time on. The fir- first is just on the, how you actually did the search and you started with a more kind of scattershot approach and then, then really tailored the approach to, to much more specific niche industries. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Because that is something where, where we see a lot more success, candidly, when just from what you said, right, you're able to compound the knowledge about the industry, you're able to compound the relationships with various parties in, in, in a little sub-industry. So can you talk a little bit more about that, how you made that decision, and then even like how much time would you spend per niche before you'd move on? Yeah, so... <clears throat> You know, the, the decision was pretty clear for us that we needed to do something because, you know, at the nine month mark, we were looking at our, our metrics and, you know, we'd reached out to several thousand business owners and we hadn't really done much with it. And although we really weren't sure what exact next step to take, we knew for a fact that what we were doing didn't seem to be working. So we called around, talked to a few other um, a few other searchers. I think we had actually gone to a, a search fund conference where um, another searcher had spoken about how they switched to a tailored, um, a tailored um, search and, and the results that they saw. And so Steve and I kind of took that back to the office and we said, all right, how do we do this? And it was all the things we mentioned, right? Um, you know, trying to just do a deep dive into, into um, industries. And like I mentioned, we would pick two or three a piece where we would spend three or four weeks really diving deep, as deep as we could. We weren't even making, you know, we weren't, we weren't adding to our target list at this point. It was really just to confirm or deny that this is a good industry to be in. Um, but, you know, I think one of the most helpful questions that we asked while we were doing that deep dive is, and we asked it to kind of every person we spoke to, but we would say, hey, look, are you aware of any way to size a business? Um, you know, for instance, if it's a, a business that requires if it's an asset heavy business and they've got a lot of service vehicles, potentially you could say, all right, for every service vehicle, that's a half a million dollars of revenue a year. And then you go on the website and you see 20 different vehicles. Well, now you can size that business. And you also know from your conversations what a rough EBITDA margin might be for a business within this industry. And so now just by looking at a picture on their website, you know roughly top line and bottom line. And so those sorts of questions were really helpful for us to kind of find which businesses to say no to, right? Because if we were looking at that industry and we went on the website and there were only two trucks, all right, that's that's not something we're, we're interested in. We're going to move on and find find a different target. So I think it's just really being, being really picky about what you're going to say yes to, uh, sticking to um, – sticking to kind of your script of questions and learning as much as you possibly can about that industry. And finally being as, as objective as you possibly can about that industry and not become emotionally attached to it. Um, because, you know, we see that all the time, but if you can objectively look at the industry and say that this is a good industry, then, <clears throat> and then it, there's no reason not to pursue it and find those targets. Yeah. I'd add 
the human element of that with the sellers. Um, just think about it. These sellers in most cases, especially if you're looking at somebody who's run their business for 10 to 40 years, I mean, that is a huge part of their life. That's very important to them. And they're very unlikely to have a serious conversation with somebody who doesn't seem to know what they're talking about. So I would just say to anybody who listens to this, just think about any time you've been in your job and all jobs, I think to a certain extent, have a certain language and a certain specialization to them. So think about any time you've been in a job and somebody from outside your industry or outside of your role came to you and talked to you in such a way like they were an insider and you immediately knew that they were not. These business owners, their antenna are up, right? And and they are going to pick up on that immediately. So doing the research up front, learning the language, learning some of the key players in the industry and being able to bring that out in a normal conversation with a seller that just builds credibility and they trust you much more and they take it more seriously. I think that's incredibly valuable advice and very consistent with what we've seen that, that that's worked really well. So that's great. And then Steve, I think related to what the, the second part of what you said earlier, when you found Holland, when, you know, as we think of, ideal businesses for searchers and entrepreneurs to step into. You have a, a very stable business with, with limited downside, but then, you know, in your diligence or your, based on your understanding of the business, there are three or four levers that you think you can pull, right, that will materially improve the business, whether whether growth or, or, or margins. So can you talk a little bit about that, how you did that in diligence and how, how you came to the view that this was the business that had characteristics like that? And then, and then I'd love to talk, you know, Post ownership, what and and uh, now that you've been in the in the seats for for two and a half years, you know what what were those levers that you actually pulled and and how has that looked? Yeah, I think the levers aren't going to be too surprising to many people. It's, it's we realized that the company was a distributor. It had you know multiple states of territory, and during diligence, we learned that it had zero outside sales or marketing effort. Right, so immediately right there, you think, hey with a basket of 15 different related products that an end customer could need, if the company is really only, if uh, many customers are only buying one or two of those, if you actually put a good cross-selling program together and you have a good marketing engine and you get a good sales team um, and you put incentives in place and you, you do all the blocking and tackling of good marketing and sales, and you are willing to spend some money hiring new salespeople, understanding there's going to be a sales trough. Like EBIT is going to go down at first. You're going to have to make some investments. And it's about the long term, you know, being able to build a good organization that then outcompetes the other people in your territory. For us, that's what it was. That was one lever. Let's build a, build a good sales and marketing machine because this company doesn't have one right now. Um, it was all word of mouth in zero formal efforts outbound, right? That was one. The second was let's make it a better run business. That way we've got better information to make decisions with. And as a distributor, we can invest in the product and put the product on the shelf that's going to turn more frequently, right? And that that is maybe a more technologically advanced product that we can bring into the portfolio and outpace the more antiquated products. And the way that we thought about doing that was, you know, by putting in good electronic systems and good data systems, the business was really functioning on 
big filing cabinets. You know, Danny, really, the way we divvy up our responsibilities, I, I oversee a lot of the operations and finance, and Danny oversees sales and marketing. And one of the first thing he did when we came in was he grabbed the quotes, which were in a filing cabinet, and nobody had looked at them. And there was, I think, between 2 and $3 million in there. Is that right, Danny? It's about $4 million With a in quotes, quotes, right, that had never been followed up on. Our team would do a quote and they would just, it would go to that box to die. Yeah. There was also- And did, no, you, did you have any inkling of this indulgence or was this all post-acquisition? No, I mean, no, no. I mean, we knew that the, the technology systems weren't in place and the data reporting systems weren't in place. We, but we didn't know what we didn't know. You know, I didn't know. I knew that they certainly weren't following up on quotes, but I didn't know how how big the the quote opportunities. The were. opportunity was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One thing we did know before we closed was that the business had no no formal inventory management. The inventory management was let's look in the warehouse, and that rack looks like it doesn't have much on it, so let's buy more stuff and put it on there. Um, which, hey. I, I want to make it very clear, like this business ran well. The former owner did it for 40 years. And I think he had more in his head that he could keep track of um, on his own than Danny and I could even learn in 10 years. Right. But as the new owners coming in, we needed to get the good systems in place. That way we could learn those things or actually see them on some kind of dashboard of information. The benefit was, you know, unlike knowing what's in the warehouse, Actually being able to look at historical trends and look at costs and look at inventory turn rates objectively with data, that also gave us the other piece of saying, how do we build a better portfolio of products that's going to turn over more quickly and, and also be more relevant to the customers? So that was one. And that was the data, everything from what Danny talked about to what I just mentioned with inventory. Data systems in general were big um, for us to operate the company more effectively. And the final thing was looking for some some good tuck-in acquisitions that would work well. I mean, it is an older industry. Lots of the owners in the industry are the same age as the seller we bought from. And our philosophy was, hey, if, if we can do well and, you know, have a good deal with him and granted the deal goes well and we maintain a good relationship with him, Maybe he'd even be willing to introduce us to some other sellers or talk to other sellers that we gin up prospective conversations with about selling and say, hey, Danny and Steve were true to their word. They've been good buyers. And we've actually, while we haven't closed an acquisition at this point, we are starting to look. Um, we, we are starting to prospect. And he has helped us out with that in a couple circumstances now. So that's the other lever there is seeing if we can get some some good tokens. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I'd love to, to go deeper just because I know oftentimes, you know, you can identify, hey, we think this is an opportunity. There's a sales and marketing opportunity. The classic, you know, the owners don't run the business for 20 years and never spend a dollar on sales that, that everyone, that every broker uh, markets, uh, most small businesses. C can you talk about what did that actually look like? Uh, and maybe, Danny, if you spent the bulk of the time building out the sales team, what did that actually look like in terms of hiring the salespeople, deciding on how many salespeople to hire the, 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 the territories, et cetera. Yeah. So I'll talk about kind of what we inherited and, and where we took that. So what we inherited when Steve and I stepped into the business, um, including Steve and I minus the seller, there were 10 employees, an average tenure in the sales, the inside sales team 
of over 20 years. So a very experienced sales team, which is a positive. The negative is that the majority of them had their foot out the door for retirement. So we had just not necessarily lost the seller. He still kind of helped out when he could, but um, consider him gone. But we had a very senior staff that was kind of out the door with no um, no real formation of data. It was all tribal knowledge within people's heads. Um, so we knew immediately that we needed to hire some younger folks who were hungry, who could do this type of work. Um, we needed to incentivize them well. But most importantly, we needed to get this tribal knowledge out of their heads onto paper, onto documentation. And so we started building a video library of work instructions, PowerPoint presentations, recording educational classes, so that we built out an onboarding program for new employees. Um, and, you know, that was kind of one of the big first steps. Uh, that was that was our biggest concern, really, was this this huge turnover of staff, potentially, of this older staff. Uh, let me <clears> just so, say one thing, Danny. Like, we're talking about how we're a distribution business, but um, we're not a box-in, box-out distributor. There's a the products we sell are quite technical. And so what Danny is talking about with all this education, pe- people listening might be saying, well, how much do you need to learn to bring a box in and out? We actually take most of the products out of the boxes and we need to disassemble, reconfigure, program them in many different ways. So that's like the educational hurdle he's talking about. So there's a fair amount of technical customization and everything else that, that they need to know. That's right. Yep. And you know, on top of all the education, we also, for the, the sales staff, as well as the technicians who are doing those, those change outs, those modifications in the back, we built out kind of a, a, a tiered career progression. So whereas previously, basically people would just get a salary and they'd stay in that role for the, the duration of their, their career. Uh, what we built was this tiered progression where essentially the more you learn, the more you earn. Um, and so we really want to incentivize people to learn more and get exposed to more and kind of be hungry to learn more um, because it means they get paid more. And so um, we had to build up that expertise pretty quickly. You know, Steve mentioned there wasn't an outside sales staff. I think during diligence, what what we were told is there were two outside sales roles. But what we learned pretty quickly is those roles were really they were leaving twice a year to go visit customers who existing customers. So they were account managers. Um, so once we kind of had a better grip on how big our market was, what our market share was and what the opportunity was to grow, we quickly went out and hired two outside sales rep that cover our territory. Um, you know, built in a pretty good incentive package for them so that they were incentivized to, to go out and and get sales and, and grow the business. Um, and in terms of marketing, you know, when we bought the business, I, 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 this number will always live in my head. When I was doing the the analysis <clears throat> over a five year period, the marketing expenses were two hundred and seventy two dollars over five years. And when I looked at what they were spending it on, it was yellow page print advertisement, which, you know, maybe that worked at some point in time. But in 2021, uh, we need something a little bit better. So we've We've hired a you know a content marketing specialist um, who focuses on our um, you know building out copy for our website. We updated our website that was built in mid nineties. Um, we're as far as we know the first in the industry to offer a full scale e commerce um, website where customers can log in, see their user specific pricing. There's a customer portal. 
Um, and that did, you know, that came with a lot of time. It took us about a year from start to finish to build that. Um, but now that, you, you know, essentially we came from a business that didn't really have any focus on marketing. And like Steve said, if, if our theory or hope is that if we can, if we can, um, if we can put the marketing dollars where they make sense, then that's going to, that's going to help us with growth. And so between the website, between, um, you know, trying to get a mass of followers on, on social media, like LinkedIn, um, through email campaigns, through, um, SEO and Google AdWords, you know, these are things that, that the business has never done and we're starting to see it pay off for us now. Yeah. I was just going to ask, how long did it take to sort of start seeing these strategies bear fruit? Cause I realize some are probably pretty quick wins and others are, are much, much longer. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that on both the sales and the marketing side? Yeah, I think generally speaking, I think what I can say is, you know, the first 18 months in the business, we were really just focused on let's get let's get the foundation built because, you know, like Steve mentioned, we didn't really have a system for understanding what was going on in the business. Um, the business was operating off of an MS-DOS based system that was built in the mid 80s. And although it was very robust, it did a lot. Um, we had to work with an outside IT consultant to generate any reports. And it would take two to three weeks to generate a report and turn it around. And it's it's stagnant. It's that moment in time. And if you need that report again, it's going to take you two weeks to get that report again. And I mean, and I'm talking about pretty simple reports, like show me gross margin of the top five products. Um, show me sales by sales rep. You know, very basic data that we didn't have access to um, or at least it wasn't very reliable when we first came in. So we spent a lot of time in that first year and a half, year to year and a half, really just building the infrastructure that we needed so that we can make those decisions. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, once once that was done, we've kind of just been throwing fuel on the fire between the e-commerce. We just launched the e-commerce in July, beginning of July. So, you know, it hasn't been a huge growth lever for us, but we've added, um, we've had conversations with about 18 new customers uh, since July. So that's pretty good. July, so six a month on average. Um, we've got a handful of customers who have actually purchased through the e-commerce portal. Um, we've grown our, our LinkedIn followership. We just started um, really LinkedIn in, I think, March. And between March and September, we've got 800 followers. So we're adding about 100 a month or so. Again, not huge numbers, but we're kind of in the early stages here. Um, and we've gotten tons of great feedback, but we'll we'll have to kind of wait and see how those those turn to dollars. Um, early on, we also added a, a new product line. It was something that the previous business was offered to add, but the previous owner didn't put a lot of effort or didn't really want to sell it. And that was um, it's called AMI, it, Advanced Metering Infrastructure. <clears throat> and what it is is you know the old school way of reading gas, water, electric meters was to send somebody out to that meter and look at the dial on it. And they would write it down on a piece of paper, take it back to the office, the customer would get billed. Well, now in 2021, it's it's moving towards the industrial internet of things where there's a sensor on everything. And that's the same in the utility market. Uh, gas utilities are kind of slow to adopt technology just because it tends to be a more volatile um, type of, of, of energy. So um, we're kind of at this, this point in our, in, in our current industry, in the natural gas industry, where they're just now starting to adopt these technologies and move away from manual reading. So we, we started selling um, this AMI product 
and kind of the the peripheral products that go along with that in <clears throat> December of 19. So probably, you know, six months or so after we uh, bought the business. But these are really long sales cycles, you know, one year plus. But we're starting to see those pay off. We've done, um, I think, five implementations uh, of, of for different customers uh, over that time. And, you know, we, we continue to see that opportunity funnel grow. So we're pretty we're pretty bullish on that. Yeah. yeah, so just being more a little bit more probably forward leaning on on adopting some of the new technologies that the actual end customers are demanding. Yeah, so, that's right. I yeah. think the way I'd sum everything up there is it takes longer than you want, and you realize you need to be patient. Um, one other thing, when you're you asked about the sales team, Danny covered a lot. I mean, we've been in here for a while. There's no way he could have covered everything. But one other part of that. Um, and I owe this to one of our uh, investors for for this line here. It's it's a borrowed line, but you know, building a good team isn't only about getting the right people on board. It's also, unfortunately, and painfully, about getting the wrong people off board. And uh, and you got to make those hard decisions sometimes. And we had that come up with a couple salespeople, both both salespeople that you know we inherited in the sale, and people that we hired and realized, hey, you know what after we learned a little bit of what to expect with the more successful performers, we inversely, that kind of shows you when somebody's not going to be able to make it and just, it's not working out. So. That's a great point. I mean, do you, do you have any recommendations around that? Cause that is one area where both first time CEOs and veterans often, I think just don't have a lot of experience candidly in doing that. Do you, do you have any advice for how you did it? What went well, what didn't? Well, specific to the search fund community, this cannot always be black and white. In some cases, you might come in and there's somebody who's a key person and and maybe you got to decide what a key person really means to you. You know, everybody's going to have a different sensitivity to that, to that. But if you let one person go and half of your revenue and earnings go, probably probably not a good idea. You got to figure out a different arrangement there. Um so not including those situations, situations where you're not dealing with real key man risk. Um, I think you'll know when it's not working out and you'll probably try and rationalize and figure out ways to work around it. And I don't think it's wrong to let that person know, hey, here's what I expect and here is what's happening. I'd like you to change X, Y, Z, right? You probably go through that one or two rounds and then it's time to accept it's not working out, right? And and at that point, I think for those people out there, like you mentioned, who haven't done this before, reach out to, to somebody who has been a business owner and been through this before. Reach out to uh, your, maybe you've got an HR manager, maybe you've got an HR firm you work with. Talk to an entrepreneur who's gone through letting somebody go and talk through through it, the, you know, the legal and employment ramifications with either your attorney or your HR company. Surround yourself with those experienced voices and, and get your plan together on how you're going to separate. That's it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and Steve, on the on the operations and finance side, it sound, sounds like there was quite a bit of, of heavy lifting as well, just in terms of putting systems in place. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, how quickly did you do that after stepping into the role? And, and what that looked like, you know, over the last two and a half years. Yeah, I think that kind of comes to safety, inventory management and gap compliant accounting for me. Those three things. Right. So safety, 
and it was a very formal environment um, and wound up getting in touch with a safety consultant saying, hey, what are the requirements for a business like mine and and going through the task list. But I'll say I put that off a little bit. Um, that was not an immediate thing I worked on. We worked on the inventory management system and the the correct accounting first, because I think to just walk right into the organization and tell all the operations employees, we're going to do all this stuff now. It's a little bit too quick. Build some trust first. Um, make sure you got the right people on the team. And as you get a couple early wins in being the new the new leader for the organization, then they're going to be more likely to adopt and, and accept new cultural changes like big safety improvements, right? So we did that more around the one-year mark when we started um, rolling those things out. On the inventory management side, that was that was a, a big beast, and so was the gap compliant counting. But on the inventory management, we had to get the right system in place first. That was the new ERP system. And that means you need to really, at a granular level, understand the products you're selling, who you buy them from. In our case, it's a little bit more complex because we unbuild the stuff we buy and then we rebuild it as different things. So from a data and an item tracking perspective, you really need to get down into the details and understand all the, the granular configurations of different product, at least we do, right? And, and trying to speak to this in a way that would help somebody else, I think go out and actually be involved in the operations in your company a lot, do the jobs of the people in your company, intimately learn the products, and then bring that operational knowledge and some of the team members to the table when you're trying to create a new digital system, because the CTO or the IT consultant, they know how that electronic system works and they know how to write logic and code but they don't know what they're writing it for. And you really need to dovetail the operational knowledge with the IT, right? That was the big piece. Um, timeline you asked about, it, it took for us to actually get to a point where we we're managing inventory and doing inventory counts. And that was getting reflected in the financials at month and close every month. It took us about a year and a half to get to that point. And then you're still at a pretty elementary level. This is a 40-year-old business that just started inventory management two years ago. So we're still now fine-tuning it, right, on how we want to improve that going forward. Um, this week, actually, just this week, so we're uh, 27 months into ownership. Now we've got barcode scanners, so we can scan you know, the label on a box and that can populate in the operational software, and then we can fulfill that box. So it takes some serious time, um, and you're juggling a lot of different priorities. Final thing, the gap accounting. This company was managed on a cash basis in the past. So luckily, when you know the leader of the organization, the financial controller who is handling all of the accounting, he was actually retirement age. And when we came into the business, we, we had a very open conversation. He let us know he was on his way out. We said, okay. So that made a, a easy exchange for us because what we needed to bring in was an accountant who was very practiced in gap compliant financial, you know, gap compliant accounting. Um, and that's what we did. We wound up recruiting um, a controller who had first, we didn't wind up making a good hire. It was, we wound up going with somebody who, who was a controller, who was a CPA, 
And we got along great with them, but ultimately after they came in, we found lots of holes in our balance sheet at month and close every month. We were missing a lot of things. And that was one of those tough moments, you know, when I made a hire and then I needed to, to change it because we had a lot of problems. So wound up then finding another controller. And I think the key here was, you know, she had 10 years in uh, public accounting at one of the big four firms. And then after that, she had been a controller in a multinational company. So she really understood, you know, being on the audit side, being in the operator side. And God, she has made Danny and I's life so easy. I mean, prior to this, I was personally working through month end close, like every month um, with a consulting CFO to get things cleaned up because of the issues we were having. And I think Danny could attest to it. I spent a ton of time on accounting, whereas now that we've got that right person who who does it and she could probably do it in her sleep. She's so good at it. Um, it's freed us up. Really, me um, looking at the accounting so much before it's freed me up to really focus more on the team, on the strategy and, and on the operational improvements we need to to make so that when Danny and his team are out there making big promises to customers, we can we can make them actually happen right <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and i think a few a few points have come up in the discussion so far that i think are probably relevant to this but as you look back at at your time in the military and and you know small unit leadership how have the, the sort of lessons you learned back then how have you applied them um what do you think has worked well in a in a small business context what do you think you've had to work on that maybe the your military experience didn't didn't prepare you as well for but besides, besides the uh, the month end uh, closing the books and the accounting, I, I think I think for me, probably the biggest thing I learned in the military was this humility. Right? I mean, I'll go back to my my time as a Green Beret. You know, I I graduated August two thousand ten, earned my Green Beret. The next month, I was on my way to Afghanistan to meet my team in Afghanistan, who had already been there for three months, and I think half of them, six of them, already had Purple Hearts from that deployment. Um, I mean, I was walking into a very kinetic environment. The previous team leader had just bought, lost both of his legs. But, you know, I came in with, with an attitude that I'm, I'm here to learn. Like, I'm, okay, yeah, I, I've got to make the tough decisions when it's time to make the tough decisions. But until that happens, I'm, I'm here to learn. You guys are the experts. You guys have been here already. And it's the same concept when we stepped into the business. Um, you know, we, we came into the business and, you know, one thing Steve alluded to earlier is if you want to understand the operation, you've got to do the job of everybody in the business. And Steve and I, I mean, from answering phones and talking to customers to out in the back, disassembling a regulator, changing out, uh, reconfiguring one of the products, just really trying to understand and just be do the do the same job as everybody that's here. Right. We've got to really understand what's going on before we we try to make any changes. And sure, we're going to make some changes, but we're not going to do it without understanding what's going on first. And then we're also not going to do it without bringing in the expertise to kind of consult and guide us in, in what these decisions might mean. So for me, I think that's the biggest lesson is just maintain that sense of humility Um you know, you don't know all the answers. You're not going to know all the answers and you're not expected to know all the answers. That's why you need to have the right people around you. Yeah, that, make, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's very consistent with, with all the, the, the new CEOs who we, we've uh, worked with who've been successful. You know, it's that element of humility. But then also, as you said, 
really learning what the business does and, and getting involved in the operations. You need to do that before you can tell someone who's been doing something for 20 years how to do it better. Um, well, as we wrap up, any just last advice that you would give to a veteran, you know, who might be interested in pursuing search or is, is just, just, you know, starting to go down the path of looking to, you know, do entrepreneurship through acquisition? I'll, I'll say, you know, if there's anyone out there like me who kind of had some self-doubt at the beginning, I would say just in general, it's not a bridge too far, right? First thing is there are a lot of really smart investors out there um, who have a lot of money and they want to put that money to work. Um, so raising money is one of the easiest things in the world. Um, I was very intimidated by it. The first time I had to ask an investor for a check with a comma in it, um, it's not something I'd ever done before. Um, but, you know, look, if, if, if I can do this, I'm a knuckle dragger. That's, I mean, I, I was, Steve and I, we say it all the time. We were just knuckle draggers and it's, it's true. Right. I mean, but we went out and we found some success. Um, and if we can do it, I think anyone can. So, um, just talk to as many possible people as you can to get a good idea of what you're stepping into. But if you feel like this is the right path for you, by all means, it's not a bridge too far. Yeah. I think there's clearly going to be a lot of people that uh, wind up going funded or unfunded. Um, either way, I think it's, it's very valuable to surround yourself with some more experienced entrepreneurs or investors. Um, I know, you know, on our side, because we're funded, we have to have a board of directors. They've got a fiduciary responsibility and we are very lucky to have a very good board who's, who's been really helpful to us in, in many ways. Right. But for people who go unfunded, I think they can just as easily um, through their network or through reaching out to entrepreneurs locally, find some people, maybe, maybe you are giving them a small check, you know, every quarter, maybe it's $2,500, $3,000, something like that a quarter, just so you can meet with them and get another perspective. Because when you're in the owner seat, things are really busy and you are in the details. Um, trying to step away and focus on strategy on a somewhat routine basis and then also get some some objective guidance is, is pretty helpful, right? And I think having those outside people with experience can go a long way. Yeah, and no, I think I think I think both those are, are great advice for not only for veterans but for anyone who's interested in, in stepping into a role like like you have done. Yeah. Well, Stephen, Danny, really appreciate uh, your sharing your story, uh, all the successes you've had to date, and look forward to hearing uh, about a lot more going forward. So, really do appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure thanks, Alex. It. Appreciate it. If you are interested in learning more about entrepreneurship through acquisition and search funds or small business ownership more broadly, please reach out. You can find us at www.searchacquire.org or email me, Alex Mears, at info at searchacquire.org. Thanks for listening and please share with any prospective entrepreneurs who you think could benefit.